God is never without a witness. For the psalmist says that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmaments show his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Every man who lives in any part of the world has a universal witness of creation around them. For Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. See, every person can see from creation around them that there had to be a creator. There has to be an intelligent designer, a maker for what we see could not come into existence on its own. They also can see from creation the creator's tremendous eternal power and even something of his Godhead. Three persons in one, evident in the creative order of the universe. So that man is without excuse before God. No man can ever stand before God and say, I never knew you existed. For the evidence for his existence is all around them. But you know, the truth of the gospel is not general revelation, but rather it's special revelation that cannot be ascertained simply by looking at nature. One has to know certain things. They have to accept certain truths concerning Jesus Christ in order to be saved. One must be willing to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead in order to be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation for there is no distinction between Jew or Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. See, we have to understand some certain truths. We have to understand that we've sinned, and that we've fallen short of God's glory, that we can't save ourselves by our good works, and that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that he offers to us salvation, the forgiveness of our sins, if we but call upon his name in order to be saved. But for them to understand that, and for people to understand that, they need another human being to explain it to them, to explain the gospel. For Paul goes on to say, how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? For faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Someone has to share the gospel, the word of God with them, in order for faith to be born in them. 
And God sets apart individuals as his witnesses, his preachers, his proclaimers of the truth, so that men and women might come to Christ. He does so now. He did so back in the early church and all through church history. He does so now, and he's going to do so during the coming tribulation period here on the earth. For during this tribulation period, he will have his witnesses. I call them the genuine Jehovah Witnesses. The genuine Jehovah Witnesses. Who will be spreading the good news that Jesus saves. Now last time we unsealed the fifth sealed judgment, the cry of the martyrs. For God to take vengeance on those who persecuted and killed them. And God certainly hears their cry, for in the second half of the tribulation period, the last three and a half years, God is going to pour out his wrath upon mankind, avenging the death of his followers and the world's abusive treatment of his chosen people, the Jews. The number of people who will come to Christ during that tribulation period is beyond counting. It is incredible number of people. In fact, John writes, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, people, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now as to their identity, the elders said to John, These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation, washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And so these are people that hear the gospel during this seven-year period of time, and they come to Christ. They accept Jesus as their Messiah and as their Savior. But they have lost their lives as a result of following Jesus. Now, during the tribulation period, the Spirit of God is going to be very, very active here on the earth. We saw before already that he's no longer going to be restraining or holding back evil, but there is going to be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, I believe similar to what happened on the day of Pentecost. For Joel chapter 2 predicts, and it shall come to pass, Afterwards, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and the earth, blood, fire, pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant among whom the Lord calls. Now the context, the context of this prophecy in Joel chapter 2 is clearly right before the great and awesome day of the Lord. In other words, it's a reference to the last half of the tribulation period when God's judgments are going to be most severe with geophysical and astronomical changes will occur. God says that he's going to pour out his spirit on all people for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
Now, this passage was partially fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. In fact, Peter quotes it in Acts chapter 2. Uh, he quotes from this passage of Scripture to answer the questions, the questioning Jews concerning what was happening. But it was only a partial fulfillment. For the great and dreadful day of the Lord did not come. There were no geophysical or astronomical changes. The blood, the, the moon didn't turn to blood and all those other things. Only the outpouring of the Spirit and salvation for those who call on the name of the Lord. But in the future, right before the great and terrible day of the Lord, there will be another Pentecost, another great harvest of souls, as the Spirit of God comes into a fresh way on those who have trusted in Christ, along with miraculous signs, so that those who respond to their message, those who call on the name of the Lord, will be saved, just like you and I. Are saved today. Now, last time I briefly mentioned two groups of human witnesses that will be sharing the good news of the gospel with others, and through whom an incalculable multitude will respond in faith. This morning, I want to take a closer look at the genuine Jehovah Witnesses of the tribulation period. The first group is found in Revelation chapter 11. I ask you to turn there. Revelation chapter 11, and we're going to look at the, the two witnesses. Revelation 11, follow along as I begin reading at verse 1. Revelation 11, verse 1. It says, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they shall tread the holy city underfoot for forty-two months, or three and a half years. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy one thousand two hundred and sixty days, which is three and a half years, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Now, there's been much speculation as to the specific identity of these two witnesses. But before we consider what, who they might be, let's look at what the, how the text identifies them. First of all, the two witnesses are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. The two olive trees and two lampstands. This imagery of the two olive trees and golden lampstands is taken from Zechariah's prophecy. Zechariah chapter 4, in which God gives a prophecy concerning the rebuilding of the temple, which would have been the second temple. Zechariah 4 verse 1 states, Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who was wakened out of his sleep, and he said to me, what do you see? 
So I said, I am looking there. It's a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one on the right and of the, of the bowl and the other at its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Now when Zechariah asked the angel to identify the two olive trees and the, at the right of the lampstand and its left, and what are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacle uh, of the two gold pipes from which the golden oil drains, he was told that these are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. So the two olive trees are identified as the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. Now this vision, just like the Joel chapter 2 vision, has both a near and a far fulfillment. The near fulfillment relates to Zerubbabel, who was at that time the governor of Judah after the return from the Babylonian captivity. Zerubbabel was the governor. It was under him, his leadership, that the second temple was rebuilt. And the angel is saying in this vision to Zechariah that Zerubbabel would lay the cornerstone and would finish it by laying the capstone, not by military power or by human manpower, but by the power of the Spirit of God that would flow through him. He along with the workers with him would be given supernatural enablement by the Spirit to rebuild the temple. The lamp of God would once again burn brightly in the temple as a witness to the world. And the two olive trees are identified as the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. In Zechariah's time, the two would have been Zerubbabel, the governor of Israel in charge of temple rebuilding, and Joshua, the high priest. Zerubbabel and Joshua were the spirit-filled men who, were led the, who led the rebuilding project and the reestablishment of spiritual light in Israel and thus to the world. Now this imagery is applied to two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. And you will note in our text that these two future witnesses are also connected with the temple because they were told to, to measure the different parts of the temple. Perhaps the two witnesses like the original two olive trees of Zerubbabel and Joshua are two spirit-filled leaders in charge of rebuilding the temple and that their ministry is closely associated with it. Or perhaps they use the temple as a visual aid to show the fulfillment of it in Christ. It does appear, though, that they have a ministry that's primarily focused on the temple and on the nation of Israel. They're, they're basically witnesses to the Jewish nation. Now, we also know for sure from our text that these two witnesses are going to be empowered by God. They're going to be empowered by God because verse 3 states that I will give power to my two witnesses. 
So they're going to be spirit-filled men, a mighty force for the Lord. According to verse 3, these two witnesses are going to minister for 1,260 days, or that's three and a half prophetic years. A prophetic year is 360 days. And so three and a half years. I believe that they will come to on the scene just prior to the middle of the tribulation, before the Antichrist breaks his covenant with Israel, and that their ministry is going to stretch into the second half of the tribulation period. Reason I say that, because Revelation 11 verse 14 reveals that with their death, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. <coughs> then the seventh angel sounded, and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of our Christ. The seventh trumpet judgment sounds near the end of the second half of that tribulation period, and it's going to unleash the seven bold judgments that are quickly poured out on the earth. So since their death and resurrection occurs before the seventh trumpet, and since they ministered for three and a half years, that means they came onto the scene prior to the middle of the tribulation. And some have postulated that they're kind of God's answer, God's antidote to Satan's men, the Antichrist and the false prophet. So Satan has the Antichrist and false prophet. God has these two witnesses. They're going to be very active during the last half of the tribulation. They're going to be clothed in sackcloth. That was the Old Testament garb for those anticipating the judgment of God. In fact, and it's a sign of mourning for sin. They're also going to be invincible. Invincible. Revelation 11.5 reveals that if anyone wants to harm them, fire is going to proceed from their mouth, devour their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. No one's going to be able to touch them. Nothing is going to stand in their way in accomplishing their ministry until their God-given mission is finished and fulfilled. Plus, these two will have supernatural powers to perform miracles. They will have the power to shut heavens so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy and they have the power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all the plagues as often as they desire. Now, concerning their mission, it's twofold. First of all, they're going to prophesy. And prophecy is both, in, in scriptures, it's both foretelling the future, but it's also foretelling the truth. A prophet not just told what's going to happen in the future, but they are proclaimers of God's word. And so these these two are going to be preaching, and they're going to warning people of the judgment that is coming. Perhaps they will be, use the book of Revelation as their text. Or some other prophetic scripture, Matthew chapter 24. So that people will know what is coming and what lies ahead. The Antichrist is going to give his own deceitful spin on the whole thing and, and on world events. But the truth will also be spoken as men and women will be warned of the impending judgment. But they're not only going to prophesy, but verse 7 says they're going to testify. 
For it says, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. They will testify. They're going to, which means that they're going to be sharing the gospel so that others might trust in Christ as their Savior, Messiah. They will be two golden lampstands in this darkened world, two on fire, spirit-filled witnesses for Christ. Now, now, Bible scholars and prophecy, people that kind of specialize in prophecy, they have speculated over the specific identity of these two. Some say that they're just going to be two Jewish men that God's going to raise up and, and, and use. And it could be that. We don't know. Almost, there's almost universal agreement that Elijah is going to be one of them. Elijah. From Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And so God's going to send Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord or before the last half of the tribulation period known as the great tribulation. Now, again, this prophecy was partially fulfilled in Christ's lifetime in the person and ministry of John the Baptist who came in the power of Elijah. But John the Baptist did not minister right before the dreadful day of the Lord. And so we, and I might add, so do the Jews look for the return of Elijah in the future, before the middle of the tribulation. Some of the miracles that the two witnesses will perform fit Elijah's profile. 1 Kings 17 verse 1 reveals that Elijah said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. And we know from James chapter 5 verse 17 reports that it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And so he had that power to withhold rain. When Ahaziah, the successor to Ahab, sent a captain of 50 men to capture Elijah and bring him to Samaria, 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 10 states that Elijah answered and said to the captain of 50, If I am a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50 So God supernaturally protected Elijah by fire. Elijah is considered by the Jews to be the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. For he was the one who stood for God in the midst when he was surrounded by unbelief. He stood and proclaimed the message for God. Now the identity, though, the second witness is kind of up for grabs. Some believe that the second witness will be Enoch, since Enoch is one of two men in the Old Testament that never died. We know from Genesis 5, 24, it says, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And so he was raptured. He was taken out of here without ever experiencing death. The only other one who was taken up to heaven uh, without actually dying was Elijah. Remember, he was taken up in a chariot of fire. Also, Enoch had prophesied concerning coming judgment at the time of the flood. 
Jude verses 14 and 15 says that Enoch prophesied that, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And so God, he's, he's prophesying that judgment's coming. God's going to avenge. God's going to get even. God's going to settle the score. He's going to execute justice here on the earth. And But Enoch is a Gentile who lived hundreds of years before Abraham and therefore is not identified with the nation of Israel. And the purpose of Enoch's translation to heaven, according to Hebrews 11 verse 5, was so that he would not experience death whereas the two witnesses of Revelation 11 will experience death. Perhaps a more plausible identity of the second witness is that it will be a resurrected Moses. A resurrected Moses. You know, both the Old Testament and Jewish traditions expected Moses and Elijah to return in the future. The Jews believed that God's promise to raise up a prophet like Moses, necessitated that Moses had to come back. Deuteronomy 18.15 promises that the Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. And if you remember the buzz around John the Baptist, according to John verse one, chapter 1, verse 21, it says, they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Many thought that Jesus Christ was that prophet. The Jews were looking for both Elijah and Moses to reappear. In fact, at the Seder, remember, they, we set a place for who? Elijah. We sent a little boy out to look to make sure he, he's not coming. Because they're looking for the return of Elijah. Moses and Elijah were both present with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. They discussed Christ's coming death, his second coming, the establishment of his kingdom. So both received firsthand from the Lord himself clarification of the facts of the gospel. The miracles of the plagues mentioned in our text are identical to the ones performed by Moses in Egypt. He turned the water of the Nile River into blood, and he announced the other plagues on Egypt as recorded in Exodus chapters 7 through 12. And so he was the one that went before Pharaoh and said, this is what's going to happen. And it happened. Many believe that these two witnesses are going to do that same thing in the tribulation period when the different trumpet judgments occur. They're going to be telling people, this is what's going to happen. And it happens. A resurrected Moses as one of the witnesses may shed some light on why Jude 9 reveals that the devil disputed with the archangel Michael over the body of Moses. Perhaps to hinder a future resurrection of him. Moses and Elijah together represents the entire Old Testament to the Jewish nation. Moses was the lawgiver. Elijah, the greatest of the prophets. These were, they were witnesses to the first coming and mission of Christ. Jesus, when he appeared to the two and his disciples on the road to Emmaus, it says he began with Moses and the prophets and showed that he might suffer and die. So they were witnesses of salvation at his first coming, perhaps now witnesses before his second. But doesn't Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 state, as it's appointed unto men once to die, 
but after this the judgment. How can Moses be the other witness since he's already died once? He can't die twice, or can he? Well, let me just say to you that that's the general rule, but there are exceptions. There have been exceptions to the rules. Just think, Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, Dorcas, from the New Testament, they all died once, and they were raised to life again, only to die again. And we who are looking forward to Christ's return, we may escape tasting death as our bodies are going to be changed instantaneously. You and I may never die. So the fact that Moses died once does not stand in the way of him being resurrected and one of the witnesses at the beginning of the great tribulation stretching into the last three and a half years. And what a powerful witness these two would be. The two greatest in Jewish history. The, what a powerful witness they would be as they share through their message and miracles the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their ministry will be aimed primarily at the nation of Israel. And it will be perhaps through their ministry that a second group of Jewish witnesses are going to hear the gospel, trust in Jesus Christ as the Messiah Savior. I'm speaking of the 144,000 sealed witnesses that are found over in Revelation chapter 7. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7. I'd like to begin reading at verse 1. Revelation 7, verse 1. It says, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on, on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the, of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Now this is at the beginning of their ministry, kind of like a flashback. Now fast forward three and a half years to the end of the tribulation and turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. Revelation 14 verse 1. It says, Then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. 
And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, who, for they were virgins. They are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These are redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Now God's judgment is about ready to blow. In fact, the angels are ready to unleash it. And God says, wait a minute. Before God's fury is unleashed on the earth, before the land, trees, or sea are harmed, God, first of all, seals 144,000 witnesses. Now note what our text says about them. First of all, they are Jewish in descent. I know I've read a number of commentaries, especially those that don't believe in the literal tri tribulation period, that believe that the church replaces Israel, and they somehow say that this is the church. These 144,000 are church saints. I think the Spirit of God is very, very plain, and He wants to make it clear to us, because He enumerates that there are 12,000 from each tribe. And so these are Jewish men. Jewish witnesses. They are not the modern-day Jehovah Witnesses of the cults. These are Jewish men going to be set apart from God, Jewish in descent. They are redeemed from the earth. That is, they have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. The precious blood of Christ has purchased these servants of God. They've been bought with a price. They now belong to the Lord as a special possession. They perhaps came to Christ through the ministry of the two special witnesses during the latter part of the first half of the tribulation. And the fact that the angels are told to hold back the unleashing of God's judgment until these 144,000 are sealed indicates that they came to Christ before the start of the great tribulation that begins in the middle of that, three, uh, that seven year period, three and a half years to the end. They have, it says here, the seal of the living God. Revelation 14 verse 1 states that the seal or identifying mark is having his father's name written on their foreheads. It's interesting to note that during this same period of time in which they will be ministering that the Antichrist and the false prophet will be forcing people to receive his mark, the 666 tattooed on their foreheads. The, the mark of a man. And it may be that believers during this period of time will also have the mark of the Father's name on their forehead, whereas unbelievers will have the mark of the Antichrist. And so it's going to be very apparent who's following who. And because it's going to be right here. I mean, you can't hide that. I mean, if it was on your arm or whatever, you could have a long sleeve shirt on. But up here, you know, it's clear for everybody to see. It appears that once one makes a decision, receives the mark, the decision is final. The seal of the living God guarantees their protection from the wrath of God and from Satan during this tribulation. When the fifth trumpet judgment sounded and, and locusts 
were released from the bottomless pit. It says in Revelation 9 verse 4, they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And so just like God differentiated between the Israelites and the Egyptians and sent the plagues only on the Egyptians, so the seal of God is going to protect these 144,000 from suffering the wrath of God and Satan during the tribulation. They are 144,000. They are called the servants of our God. They are literally bond servants, bond slaves of the living God are like Paul and you and I, we who are slaves of Christ. Their mission is going to be to evangelize those who are lost, those who have not made a commitment in their case, those who have not received the mark of the beast, who have yet to succumb to the counterfeit miracle signs and wonders. And they did so with abandonment. Because the text says that they are ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Now what in the world does that mean? Well, in light of the pressures of the tribulation, these 144,000 men are called by God to abstain from a normal married life. Like Paul encouraged the believers at Corinth during the first century and the persecution that was coming, he says the time is short so that from now on those who have wives should be as those who have none. For Paul goes on to say, I want you to be without care. He who is married cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. The purpose of the celibate life is so that you may serve the Lord without distractions. So these 144,000 celibate Jewish men are going to serve the Lord without distractions, whereas the ministry of the two witnesses appeared to be confined to Israel and to to Jerusalem. The 144,000 Jewish witnesses are going to fired with unflagging zeal for the gospel of grace, are going to carry it to all the nations of the world so that everybody has a chance to hear the gospel. You know, today we have approximately 35,000 missionaries of all stripes and types working in the world. And we're fighting a losing battle. There are still places on this face of the earth that have not heard the gospel And even with all the modern technology, we're still losing ground. But during the tribulation, there are going to be four times as many missionaries as we have today. All of them fired up. All of them filled with the Holy Spirit. Each protected from physical harm so that the evil one cannot touch them. Fanned out throughout the whole world to share the gospel message with everyone before God's judgment completely falls. So every person is going to be given a chance to hear to repent of their sins, to receive the mark of Christ. And the Bible reveals that there's going to be a great harvest because a great multitude, which no one can number of all nations, tribes, people, and tongues, will be standing before the throne of God as a result. And I believe it's a result of these 144,000 Jewish evangelists, the genuine Jehovah Witnesses. Now, as I close, I want to remind all of us of our responsibility today to be witnesses for Christ in this world. Like the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, you and I who know Jesus Christ have received the seal from God. 
Paul reveals in Ephesians 1 that in him you also trusted. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. My friends, we've been redeemed. We've been purchased with the precious blood of Christ, and we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. We belong to, we identify with Jesus Christ. We are his purchased possession. Paul just kind of describes the seal a little bit more in Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, when he writes, Nevertheless, the sound, solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. I think of the seal as almost like a coin with two sides. Two sides of one side says, the Lord knows those that are his. God knows us. We belong to him. We are his servants. And we, the second side of the coin says, we're to live holy lives today because the other side says, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Now as the servant of the Lord, Paul says we must not quarrel. But be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive to do his will. As a servant of the Lord, we need to sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope, that is in you with meekness and in fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. As God's servants, we're now ambassadors for Christ, his representatives in the world. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. He's given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. He's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. My friends, you and I who know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. We've been set apart for his service. We have been entrusted with the gospel, the good news of how sinful men can be reconciled to God through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. And we need to be ready to give an answer for the reason of the hope that we have in Christ. We are to be his ambassadors in this world, his representatives, humbly, patiently, gently sharing the gospel with others so that they too might come to Christ. You know, Jesus Christ, before his ascension into heaven, issued his marching orders. And he said to his disciples, and I think to us today, he says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. In fact, we are commanded to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Those orders have never been rescinded. They have not been rescinded and they have not been um, modified. They're the same. We're commissioned today 
to share the good news with others so that they might be saved prior to the beginning of the tribulation period. So I ask us the question, are we serious about fulfilling that great commission?